This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. The blog and commentary today on the Scott Thompson Show page and blog. Trump versus Clinton, the reality show. Have you ever heard uh, of so much chatter around a political debate? When was the last time you heard somebody say, hey, are you watching the debate tonight? Have you ever heard that before in your life? Other than, of course, from political junkies. Uh, This should be quite the show. We'll talk about that coming up uh, just a little later on. Poll question of the day. Are you going to be watching tonight? 53% of you have said no. You're lying. Maybe. Maybe it's just me. Uh, Feel free to offer your opinion. So many ways to talk to us. Facebook and Twitter. The phone lines are always open at 905-645-3221. Star 9900 on your cell. And you can send me a note at scottthompson at 900chml.com. All right, we're going to talk about this for the next hour. And uh, we've got various guests coming up. We'll get into that in just a sec. First, we want to bring in uh, Tom Clark, Chief Political Correspondent, Global News, and host of the West Block on Global. He is with us now. Hello, Tom. How are you today? Scott, how are you? I got worried when you said we're we're returning to reality, and I was like, "Wait a minute!" <laughs> oh, and then I got, "Oh, you're talking about the weather, and yeah. you and I are about to talk about the debate because that is unreal. That's not reality." You've you've been doing this a long time. You've got a distinguished you have a, a distinguished career. Have you ever heard so much hype around a political debate before? No, uh, the answer is no. And I was fascinated by a study in the states uh, that question that you asked where 53 percent of Canadians said that they weren't going to watch the debate. In the United States, it looks as if about uh, the, the, the rating should be about 75 million people tuning in for this debate. 75 million. I mean, that is three times the audience of Super Bowl, uh, just to give you some idea. So it, it shows you that, uh, you know, when you... Because this election is so unreal, because the Donald Trump phenomenon is so unreal, uh, this is what happens. And people are tuning in either uh, to really sort of do some serious politicking and thinking and wondering who they're going to vote for. My guess is most people are tuning in because they're waiting for the car crash to happen. So my next question, is this about the cast of characters? Is this about the issues in the future of America? (laughs) Well, I mean, in a way, it is the future of America. There's no question about it. But really, you know, the central question on everybody's lips about this election is, can Donald Trump really win this? You never hear people saying, can Hillary Clinton actually win this? Mm -hmm. It's all about Donald Trump. And the fact that he is this outside uh, character who has come in, broken every single rule, offends, you know, (laughs) legions of people by what he says... You just haven't seen that in a presidential uh, race before. The debate, you know, a lot of people are saying, well, this will be make or break for either one of the candidates. Uh, the stakes are really high. When you get 75 million people watching, the stakes are really high in this debate. And keep in mind, you know, it's uh, this is one of the most unenthusiastic elections that I've ever seen. Hmm. Uh, people don't, you know, by and large, they don't like either one of the candidates. So is this good or bad for politics? We always say that people aren't engaged. Well, they certainly are now when you bring it down to their level. Is this good or bad for the game? You know, I, I, I think it overall it's good. I think that people getting involved, uh, you know, even around their own dining room table or, you know, having a jug of beer out and talking about it makes it interesting, even if it's the Donald Trump punching bag. Uh, or or the other way around, uh, Donald Trump the hero. But you know it it you you need to have that interest before you can go on and start caring about uh, the real stuff. And uh, not to suggest that the presidency isn't real, 
it is. Uh, but here's the thing. Look, even if Donald Trump gets elected, um, and I've spent a lot of time, lived in Washington for a long time, uh, the whole process of government would all of a sudden surround him like a cocoon, like it does most presidents. And uh, the crazier stuff that he wants to do just wouldn't happen hmm. uh, because the machinery of government would just prevent it from, from happening. How is this playing in Ottawa with our leaders? Are they off around the water cooler somewhere laughing and joking about this? Or are they taking notes saying, holy smokes here, maybe the world's changing here? Well, they are watching, uh, like the rest of us, with sheer and utter fascination, maybe a little bit of horror at the same time. i give you an example, though. There's an event this evening, uh, just a quiet thing that I've been invited to that uh, with some senior politicians, and the deal was that it had to be over with by 8 o'clock because everybody <laughs> wants to go home and watch the debate. <laughs> or better so yet, just put it up on the big screen there. Well, there you go. But be... Nobody wants to know how the other person reacts to what they see. <laughs> uh, so when meetings in Ottawa are uh, shaped around what time the debate is on, you know it's a big deal here. Will this change Canadian politics in any way, or has it just the way the game is played? Uh, do we learn from this as what not to do next time, or do we learn from this as what to do next time? Well, I guess a lot depends on who wins. I mean, mm-hmm. if Donald Trump wins, then you say, well, you see, it works. I think that, by and large, Canada is sort of marching on a different road uh, politically. I note with some interest that Kelly Leach, who's running for the leadership of the Conservative Party, is going very Donald Trump, uh, identity politics, uh, all this, all the same sort of stuff that Donald Trump is walking uh, over. Um, it doesn't. Ha- there's no indication yet that that is working. So I, d- I think that you know we're all proud of the fact that Canada is a different country than the United States. We're great friends with them, uh, but you know our politics doesn't have to be the same. So I don't think it really. It I don't think it really does. Where it changes our politics, Scott, is if Donald Trump wins, and I and I don't mean to say that Hillary Clinton's going to be a wonderful gift to Canada because the Democrats, in many regards, are just as nutty as as the Republicans mm-hmm. when it comes to things like NAFTA. You know, Hillary Clinton has also said, "Hey, I'm going to renegotiate it or tear it up." But guess what? You know who also said that back in 2008 was one Barack Obama. Hmm. So it seems like every American politician says it every four years when there's a presidential election. But here's the thing. If, if Donald Trump is elected, and keep an eye, too, on what happens in the Senate and in uh, the House of Representatives, because Congress has more effect on us than the presidency does. Hmm. It seems politics is a world of extremes now. You're either this way or that way. The, the middle has seemed to be, although we talk about the middle class a, a lot, uh, middle politics seems to be gone. It's either you're far left or you're far right. It really has become a polarized landscape out there. Interesting, there was a, again, you can tell I'm a political nerd because I read all these various studies and reports, but one out of the University of Michigan uh, at the end of last week said that the gettable votes, the votes that are truly going to be cast but the people don't yet know which way they're going to cast, is down to an all-time low of 5%. Mm. And really that says more about the partisan nature of American politics than it does about the ability of people to sort of move freely between left and right. I don't think that that's necessarily the case in Canada. I think that there's, as we saw in the last election campaign in this country, uh, Canadians can move uh, much more freely, I think, politically, 
than Americans do. I think Americans are entrenched yeah. in this class warfare, and I don't think Canada's there, and I hope we don't get there. How will or how have these candidates been preparing over the last week, do you think? Well, uh, Clinton's been preparing a lot, uh, according to, uh, I know a person who's, who's uh, deep in their campaign, and uh, she's been going through multiple training sessions. Donald Trump, not so much. Uh, Donald Trump is preparing today. It's sort of like, you know, remember that exam that you crammed four or five hours before you wrote it? Uh, I also <laughs> remember how well I did on it, Tom. Yeah, well, there you go. He feels that, uh, why prepare? Because his charm, as he sees it, is being off the cuff and saying stuff that just occurs to him at the moment. In his mind, he said, look, that won me the Republican nomination. Why would I want to change now? Uh, I think after this debate, he may want to prepare a little bit more for the next one. But, uh, you know, at, at the end of the day, this isn't going to be about deep policy. What people are looking for tonight is going to be character. And whether she is friendlier and whether he's saner. Hmm. And those are the two metrics they have to meet. And we forget that there's two other shows. I say, say, say shows like it's a reality show. There's two more debates after this. So one can go one way, one the other, and the other right down the middle. These could change drastically from one to the other, couldn't they? Yeah, absolutely. And keep in mind, in the first presidential debate in 2008 mm -hmm. that I was at, uh, Barack Obama lost that badly. Um, and uh, Mitt Romney walked away with it. So it's, uh, you know, it, the, the first round, it's the first period of a three-period game. Yeah. And, you know, uh, we all know what happens in the third period. How will Hillary prepare for this differently? Less about the facts, more about the show. How much of personality comes into play when preparing for this debate? Well, it, there's a lot. I mean, it, it, it's, uh, it's not as serious as people think. They... Hillary Clinton invited Mark Cuban, who is uh, another reality show uh, star, mm. multi-billionaire, hates Donald Trump. And the Clinton camp announced that not only was he going to attend the debate, but he'd be sitting in the front row, basically to eyeball Donald Trump to try and get under his skin. So these are sort of the games that are played uh, at these debates. And then the big question is, are the moderators going to be allowed to fact-check? Um, frankly, I don't think that's a moderator's role. I think that's the opponent's role is to fact check but nevertheless uh... so there's a lot of psych going on and something like this and uh... you know in terms of hillary clinton preparing uh... i think that from her point of view what she's got to do is push donald trump to say something crazy try to get under his skin try and get a reaction out of him because she figures that in the world of television where perception is everything uh, if he is perceived as being slightly unhinged, then sh then that's a big win for her. You know, it, it, we talked earlier and and started this by saying, have you ever heard of uh, such commotion caused around a debate? Have you ever heard of such commotion caused before a debate? I mean, the the hype around this, it's like a prize fight. I'm waiting for Don King. Well, he has already stepped into the ring. Yeah. But it, yeah. it, it almost has that flavor, doesn't it? Well, it does. You know, the funny thing about presidential debates is that they're not... Uh, etched in stone that they are going to happen. There's a debate commission, and uh, in the past, sometimes debates have happened, other times they haven't. I've been to president. I've been to a number of presidential debates, and they are like a a circus. I mean, there are people out there in food trucks. There's T-shirts being sold. There are marching bands. There's jugglers. There's acrobats. I, you've never seen anything like it. So it's a whole it's a whole thing, and uh, and you know it it. 
it's like going in, for lack of a better expression, into the Grey Cup and uh, and watching the game. The only thing is, as you pointed out, there's three Grey Cups to be played. Uh, last question: Are we expecting too much? Could this end up being dull? You know, like you know, like a, like a blowout Super Bowl game. The first quarter, it's a blowout. Everybody shuts off before Lady Gaga takes the stage. Yeah. <laughs> You're right, and the sad part is that Lady Gaga is not performing in this debate, which is kind of a shame. That's the only thing that's missing here, Tom, is a halftime show. <laughs> yeah, I know. I Listen, my, my suspicion is this, is that um, we are going to get less than what we're expecting to see. Um, you know, what are we all going to be talking about tomorrow morning? I think we're going to be talking about how, well, that really settled nothing. <laughs> and uh, you, you know, uh, it, oh. it, so I think going into it, the you know Donald Trump has shown that he can read an auto cue, you know, read the speeches without going off. He'll probably do a lot of that, very short answers, very focused answers. Hillary Clinton will show off her policy chops in terms of going into great detail about things. Um, and I think in both those circumstances, what you end up with is something, because our expectations are so high for a very entertaining evening, I suspect we're going to be disappointed. (laughs) Uh, He always speaks in sound bites. He certainly knows how to manipulate the media. Can he get away with that at a debate? Will he not have to expand on all of this? You know what? His his numbers at the moment are such that he just has to keep on reassuring those 44% of Americans who say that they are behind Donald Trump that they haven't made a mistake. Um, and that way he plays to his own base a little bit, and he just has to look uh, sort of, as I said, sane enough or presidential enough that he gets another 5%, which, you know, Gary Johnson, who's the third-party candidate sitting at 10%, there, there are some votes right there that he could get because they're not moving to Hillary Clinton. So, I, you know, I think that he's got the the bigger challenge tonight, except... You know, Donald Trump has shown that he can be boring when he wants to be boring. And uh, all he has to do, I think, is play that card. Somebody said, uh, not not unlike what somebody said in the Canadian election, if he shows up and his pants are still up at the end of the debate, he wins. <laughs> Tom Clark's been with us, chief political correspondent, Global News. We'll know, we know what he'll be doing tonight and, of course, host of the West Block. Tom, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Good talk to you, Scott. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. I guess Americans are a little bit more interested in politics than what Canadians are. Uh, And there's more of a divide, more of a divisiveness, I guess, in the United States than there is in Canada. Uh, And people seem to rally around these things more than what what they do here. As Tom Clark was talking about, chief political correspondent with Global News when we just had on, he said, when you're at one of these conventions or when you're at a debate or any one of these political... Uh, events of any time, it's a freak show. It's a circus. It's, um, you know, it's like halftime at an NFL game. So it should be quite interesting tonight. I wonder if it, you know, if we're all expecting too much and it ends up being dull. I think by the I think by the third one there will be a halftime show. To talk more about all of this, Aaron Call is with us, director of debate at the University of Michigan and editor, co-author of Debating the Donald, and he is with us now. Hello, Aaron. How are you today? 
I'm good. Good to talk to you. Thank you very much for taking the time. Much appreciated. So, in have have you ever heard of any debate? I mean, certainly up in here, uh, up here in Canada, it would be the case. I don't know about America. Has there ever been a debate that has generated so much interest than this one? No, definitely not. They're talking about uh, maybe 80 or 100 million people tuning in tonight, which would approach uh, Super Bowl-like records. And just looking back to the primaries, the inclusion of Trump, I think, has really added a lot of interest. He was a reality television star. He had a very successful television program. And debates in the primaries that normally would only have been watched by maybe a few million people um, were watched by up to 25 million people. So he's the main reason there's so much interest. So is it about the issues or just the cast of characters? <laughs> well, the, the cast of characters, uh, both high-profile nature of, of Trump and Clinton, kind of draw, draw in the audience. But then there's going to be a, you know, a substantive discussion. It's going to be 90 minutes. There are no commercials and breaks. And so uh, you, you really can't hide uh, not having a discussion on the issues when there's only two candidates and you have to speak for about 45 minutes each. Uh, you just bring up a, a valid point because up until this point, Clint has all been has been all about the the fifteen second sound bites and and speaking in sentences. The odd time you might get a paragraph. How is that going to fly during a debate? How is he, how is he going to handle himself when he does have to expand on these issues? Yes, yeah, it's going to be very tough. Uh, he's only participated in eleven total debates uh, in his entire life. He's never been on a campaign stage with less than uh, four total candidates. So this is a new experience to him. Sometimes in the primaries, he would hide for large periods of time, like up to 30 minutes. And now there's, you know, it's impossible. There's just the two of them. So he's going to have to be deeper and more knowledgeable than he was. But he's an evolving candidate, and he last debated in March. And so hopefully he's, you know, re- reading his briefing materials and studying, because the way that the debate is um, organized is that there's basically segments in about six segments of 15 minutes, and so the, and the moderators have a tremendous amount of discussion to do follow-up, and, um, and so you have to go a little bit deeper on these debates than you did in the primary ones. How will they prepare differently, especially someone like a Hillary who's had experience at this, how will she prepare differently for this debate than previous debates? Because, of course, you have to know your stuff, you have to be factual, but there's an unbelievable, unpredictable personality element here. How does she prepare for that? No, it's, he's unlike any other opponent, and, you know, she had, there were nine debates uh, in the Democratic primary, and she had... I think it was five one-on-one debates against Sanders. And so that does help uh, in that she has more one-on-one experience. But, uh, you know, this is a different animal because in the primaries, uh, Bernie Sanders said he wanted to run a very issue-based campaign. And so he said everyone's sick about the emails and didn't push her on a lot of things like the emails, the Clinton Foundation, some other things that she didn't have to deal with. And now, you know, she's got to be prepared for defending the foundation, her comment about the basket of deplorables, her health, and so a lot of issues that haven't come up previously, and she just needs to be prepared to, to discuss those things to defend her record. Uh, do you think that uh, this will be exciting, or do you think it will be dull? There's three debates here. Are they going to unload everything in the first one, or do you think they've got some sort of strategy to build this across the three? Or do they wait and see how they fared in the first and then plan for the second? Yeah, they, you know, there's going to be a feeling out process, and there's going to be rust for both candidates. You know, since Clinton last debated in April, Trump in March, and so it may take some time to get in. You know, it's kind of like two, you know, championship boxers kind of testing each other out and just some, you know, some nondescript jabs early on the contest. But I think that it's it's going to be pretty bland. I mean, there's. 
so much hype and interest going into it. It probably it can't, it's going to fail to deliver to live up to that hype and expectation no matter what. But for Trump, the main thing he needs to do is show that he has the temperament to be president. And so he'd be wise to you know, not press Clinton on the affairs of her husband and controversial issues like that. He needs to try to appear presidential. And part of doing that is you know, being boring, rising above the fray when there's controversy, pivoting to something else. And so I kind of expect that we're going to have that debate. Uh, and But the good thing is there's two others. And so, you know, it is the best out of three. Will she be preparing to accept barbs with the, you know, as opposed to somebody challenging challenging her in debate form? Will, will there be somebody there testing her just on how she reacts when someone, when he starts insulting her or in, in, insulting her well, family or, or, well, or anything? So the, the, yeah, no, she's definitely prepared. I mean, you know, he's it's he's preparing with you know Roger Ailes from Fox News, who has a reputation for being you know difficult. Uh, Steve Bannon used to be a Breitbart, and so there are people uh, as part of his preparation team that you know have gone uh, know how to attack and, and go after those kind of salacious uh, issues and details. So there's no question she's gonna be, she is prepared for that. It, it came out a few days ago in the New York Times that uh, a longtime aide of hers has been playing the stand-in of Trump and. He's someone, uh, Philippe Rain, known as someone very bombastic, and so I think he did a very good job probably of emulating uh, Trump and his mannerisms and style, and so she's definitely prepared for those things. But it's tough, especially if you have a relationship with someone raising those issues in practice debates because those are very uncomfortable, and you know she's not going to like to deal with them, but she knows it's a possibility, so I do think that she's prepared uh, in advance for those. But her main issue is, Trump is a counterpuncher, so he's not likely to, out of the gate, attack Clinton. I think he's only going to get nasty and into those issues if Clinton goes on the offensive and attacks him, and his natural uh, inclination is to, uh, you know, punch back with something, you know, really damaging and kind of going the debate in a, a negative direction. Do you think she'll come up with one standard line or one standard thought when he starts to go in that direction and, and, and you know, starts to lower the bar? Will she will she just have one concrete line that, that brings her back? How does, she ma- how does she make sure she doesn't get dragged into the dirt with him? Yeah, she, you know, they, they test some zingers and things in advance, um, and so she'll probably have a few tested lines in the can. I think she could look to the primary debates. Uh, for some advice. I know that Governor Jeb Bush, when he was still in the race, had a pretty good line in the Las Vegas primary debate about uh, Trump not being able to insult his way to the presidency. So something like that about, uh, you know, insults is not something that's very presidential or, uh, you know, a, a zinger. An insult is not going to create a new job or solve any of the problems of, of everyday Americans and voters. And so so I'm sure she'll have uh, some things that she's tested out to uh, to try to uh, you know, sort of to protect against uh, you know real jab from him uh, in that area. So, how does what does Donald Trump have to do to win? Well, he needs to avoid making a major po- a major gap, an error, something that would consume the, the news cycle. You know, in the Las Vegas primary debate, he wasn't familiar with the United States nuclear triad. He's had some confusion about the Trans-Pacific uh, Trade Deal, about which countries are included in it. So. Some, he needs to avoid a major kind of policy gaffe, um, and that's you know kind of the, the major thing. He's helped in that there are low expectations for Trump. If people by about 10% expect that Clinton's going to prevail, so he definitely has that uh, helping him. And um, you know he's a good debater. He, he reads his opponents and audiences. He's very skilled as a former uh, reality television star. And so if he can project an image that is 
reasonable, kind kind of like a Ronald Reagan image, uh, that would go a long way towards winning because he could be able to say, look, you've heard all these things about me, and they're spending all this money to try to make me the person that I'm not. And so kind of a very measured, reasonable performance where he looks like he could be president for four or eight years, that'd be considered a big victory for him. But he's never really been presidential, Aaron, through any of this. And as a matter of fact, quite the opposite. And most thought that he would drop, you know, uh, earlier along the way and, and never make it this far. If he does change his approach too much, won't people see through that? Won't they be wondering, well, what's this? This isn't Donald. Donald's never been presidential. Why is he being presidential now? Do we want a, a presidential Donald or do they want the old Donald? <laughs> well, his his hardcore supporters probably want the old Donald, but I don't think there are enough of them in the United States for just them to be able to uh, ensure he has a victory. So he needs to, to convince those middle-of-the-road people as well. I will disagree with you on that he's never been presidential. It's rare, but I did, when, when doing research for this book, Debating the Donalds, we found, we, we analyzed the 11 primary debates in which he participated, and in the Miami debate, which was his last debate in early March, that, in the entire 90-minute debate, he appeared presidential. He didn't use the nicknames like Lying Ted and Little Marco. There was no insults and nicknames, and he was very presidential for that entire 90-minute debate. Now, that was a rarity. That was the only time, but he had the lead, and he had the comfort in order to do that. And I think in some ways that was his best debate. So if we see that Donald Trump tonight, uh, then he, he could potentially pass that uh, threshold. But, you know, your point about consistency is well taken, but you know, he's obviously had uh, kind of a history of flip-flopping on some issues, and consistency has not been very strong. But for the most part, the voters haven't punished him for that. I think they probably rather say they, you know, want someone that kind of ends at the right place and gets it right as opposed to someone that's kind of just stubborn and, and sticks in one place. So that inconsistency hasn't hurt him so far at least where he is now, and it's unclear if he'll be punished for you know making another pivot uh, in a debate setting. I think we know what Hillary has to do to win it, but what can she do to lose it? How does she screw this up? Yeah, she, um, you know, she's got some issues about likability and uh, you know, trustworthiness and things like that. And so, if she gets you know mired down in questions over the email private server, the Clinton Foundation, anything like that. Uh, you know, she could be in, in uh, trouble. And, you know, she didn't have a great performance, I don't think, in the Commander-in-Chief Forum in early September that was also in New York um, because she still, you know, chooses to litigate some of these controversies that have, that have plagued her. And so she needs to just apologize, express contrition, and move on and not try to make excuses or say, you know, Colin Powell did it, so it was okay, or nobody said I couldn't do it, or, um, you know, there was no classified material. Those things make her sound defensive, and so she just needs to... Uh, you know, kind of express some regret and apologize. And then she wants to spend the majority of the debate on policy issues. You know, as a former senator and secretary of state, she's got a, a depth of policy knowledge. And sometimes she comes out and is a little wonky. But, you know, if, if there could be a debate that kind of centers on that, and she shows, especially in contrast, you know, kind of the superficial uh, view of Trump of, of these issues, you know, then I think she could really do some help in this bit. Aaron Collis with us, director of debate at the University of Michigan and editor and co-author of Debating the Donald. Aaron, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. No problem. Take care. All right. Good luck. Uh, I'm sure you'll be watching tonight as lots will. Let's bring in TV critic Bill Brio, host of the uh, blog, author of the blog, TV Feeds My Family. And, of course, you can read, read him in most na- uh, major newspapers across the country. He's with us now. Hello, Bill. How are you today? I'm fine, Scott. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. Are you going to watch tonight? Yes, absolutely, sure. I mean, it's uh, 
uh, you know, it's a very pivotal show. It's going to be a big audience, too. Have you ever, in your life of covering television, have you ever heard so much hype uh, prior to a debate? Have you ever heard, they're talking Super Bowl numbers here, Bill. You're right. It's, it's ridiculous. Uh, you turn on CNN anytime over the weekend, and they're counting down like 36 <laughs> hours. For the they got a I countdown think- clock. It's just like uh, how there's nine hours of pre-Super Bowl shows. It's like Uh, Dick Clark's New Year's Rockin' Eve. It is. It's crazy. It's way (laughs) overblown, and it's going to be probably, uh, when it finally happens, just a big letdown. Do you think that's the case? Because we were talking about that. I I mean, there's so much hype around this. Do you think at the the end, do you think it's going to be like a reality show, and we're going to hear things like you're fired? Or do you think it's going to be a letdown for people? Well, it's all about the sound bites and how it's packaged later. You know, it's going to be the clip you see on Facebook the next day. And, you know, if, if there's a clip of Hillary, you know, like fainting and falling on a podium and it's over for Hillary, uh, you know, or if Trump says something really unbelievably uh, outrageous and, and offensive. Um, so that's, it'll be those sound bites and it's going to be really 90 minutes of who will make a mistake. Will Canadians watch? You know, that's a good question. Um, I think so because as Canadians, we've been just flooded with the same information about these two people for the last 18 months. Uh, I, I really, there's been no escaping this. So uh, as much as there are new TV shows, you know, uh, on this, this fall uh, Kevin, you know, I think people will give up the second episode of Kevin Can Wait <laughs> to watch this, yeah. Uh, why are Americans watching this? Is it the cast of characters? Is it because it's like a survivor or apprentice? Or is this about the future of America? Are they, are they concerned that they might be going in the right or wrong direction? I think if you're a voter and you're not sure how to vote and you've, you've kind of been dismayed at the choices you're going to give one last look to see if there's something there. And, um, uh, I, I mean, that, that's probably what, uh, what I would be doing if, if I was in that situation. It's, it's, it's your last chance to know and, and hear from these candidates face-to-face. You know, we've seen the other debates with the parties, but uh, this is their first clash. Do you think this will be remembered? Do you think this or or any? I guess there's three of them all together. So I mean, one they could greatly change as they as we move through them. Uh, it could be like you know three different acts in a play. But will this be remembered? Do you think down the road, like the Kennedy Nixon debate or or uh, any of those? Yeah, I, I do. Although it's funny, you know, there was a. Um... Uh, I didn't realize after the Kennedy Nixon debate there wasn't any for about. 10 or 11 or 12 years, I guess, mm. uh, they skipped several up until Jimmy Carter versus um, Gerald Ford. And it, it was because Johnson, a lot of these guys didn't see the point in it. Like, it didn't help the incumbent. So there was, there was this big gap, but I had completely forgotten that. So, um, you know, there, there's been many debates over the years that I watched and many people saw, and we have no memory of them now. So... Uh, it, it, it just depends on whether or not something happens. Is it different in the United States than it is in Canada? They seem to jump on board this stuff more than we do. We seem to be kind of apathetic when it comes towards poli- uh, when it comes to politics. Uh, do they have a different appetite for us, or is it again just the hype? 
Well, it's, it's the, absolutely the hype. I think the Canadian debate is a bit hampered in that you've got four or five people on a podium on, on stage generally. You know, we just have a different multi-party system, and sometimes that clutter is a bit less exciting, you know, especially through the Harper years, say, you know, and, and things. It was almost like three or four against one, and it was just watching rope-a-dope. Um, <laughs> I, I do think these two in particular, though, sets up Ollie Fraser. <laughs> like, it's just a yeah. bigger higher a degree of hype. You know what? The, we were talking about this earlier. I was talking to Tom Clark from Global News, and that, that's what this reminds me of. It reminds me of a prize fight, and, and not even so much the event itself, but just the taunting and what's going back and forth ahead of time. It's like you've got two opponents standing on a, a way scale looking at each other. I, you know, if Hillary was smart, she'd come in jogging wearing a, a, a you know, hooded uh, uh, yeah. thing with her name on the back, with gloves on because you know he because you know he will because you know he will do that complete with dry ice and some spotlights behind him (laughs) yeah Uh, you know hillary should send betty white to the podium just to be her (laughs) surrogate everyone loves betty white she needs to warm it up so uh that'll be her challenge tonight just to throw him off right now eh? Uh, how is the? How do you explain how media is reacting to this? We've talked about how television has changed over the years. How things like sporting events, event television like this, live television, is is really where it's at for uh, for certainly traditional media this uh, these yeah. days. How do you explain the interest? I mean, we're even streaming it on our website. It, it just we don't even yeah. stream Canadian debates on our website. No, and, and one of the best things lately is this Hillary. I don't know if you've seen the Between Two Ferns that she did with Zach Galifianakis uh, just last week. She went on, if viewers aren't, uh, listeners aren't familiar, this is a little internet streaming show that Zach Galifianakis yep. does. He'll sit down with Brad Pitt or whoever. He did one with Hillary Clinton last week, and it was hilarious and a very smart move on her part because it made her look uh, funny and, and willing to mock herself a bit, be self-effacing. So... Um, that's what this game has come down to. Where do you make the hits to get those constituents? And they're, you know, you're going to reach the younger ones on this silly goof on, uh, you know, on, uh, mm-hmm. on a cable news show uh, and between two uh, ferns. That might be more important than doing a big debate show. So it's a broad brush that they all have to play or use. So how do you think this is going to end up by the time uh, this time tomorrow rolls around? Do you think we'll see... Uh, high numbers? Do you think it'll be like a blowout Super Bowl where everybody bails before halftime? And we've talked many times. There should be a halftime show. Between the economy and defense, we should be bringing in Lady Gaga just to, you know, let everybody go to the fridge. Definitely, uh, yeah. Trump would be fine with that, having a Miss America pageant in the middle of it. I think, um, you know, it, it's really, all really, really boils down to the sound bites. Yeah. And, and if Hillary seems at all unwell, that's going to really, uh, I mean, be a factor, I think, for some people. She has to look very robust and uh, alert. And uh, Trump, um, he's going to try and look presidential. This is his time uh, not to, at the Republican convention, he made a 90-minute speech where he was just yelling at America, telling them that the country's going to hell and everything's dangerous and lock your doors. Hmm. Um, so he's going to have to change for this debate, and, and, you know, her tactic is going to be to look 
um, warm, but also alive. <laughs> do, you th- do you think that if this one is kind of dull and not would, it doesn't live up to the hype, do you think that'll affect uh, viewership for the second and third? Or do Americans love this stuff and they'll just keep coming back no matter what? I, you know, I think the first one is vitally important. You got to make that first impression. I think, um, though, that people will watch all three. If one of them stumbles here, they'll still have uh, two other chances, and uh, that's what people will watch, I think. But um, you know, it's fascinating with with the Kennedy-Nixon debate in in 1960, the very first televised debate. There was that whole thing. If you listen to it on the radio. You thought Nixon won. Mm. You watched it on TV. You thought Kennedy won. I'd be fast. I'm almost tempted just to listen to it tonight. That's fascinating, yeah. You know, you've got this guy, and the impression is that he's a game show, uh, like he's he's the head of The Apprentice. He's this reality star. And then you've got this other person who has her own baggage into it. Maybe they'll sound much smarter without looking at them. Wow, I'm that's really a good point. That. That's yeah. a very interesting point. Bill Brio has been with us, TV critic, author of the blog TV Feeds My Family, talking about the debates tonight. Could hit Super Bowl numbers. Bill, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Anytime, Scott. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. All right, the government of Ontario is holding uh, sessions across the province to discuss how to combat uh, systemic racism and discrimination. Tonight, there'll be a meeting, 7 to 10 o'clock, McIntyre Performing Arts Centre at Mohawk. That's at 135 Fennel Avenue East. Joining us now is Michael Couteau, Minister of Children and Youth Services and is the minister responsible for the Anti-Racism Directorate, which uh, I guess has been around for uh, since February of 2016. And Michael is with us now. Thanks for coming in, Michael. Much appreciated. Thanks for having me here. Uh, first of all, let's talk about what you're here to do. What's the objective? What are you trying to do here? What kind of discussion are you trying to start? So we're having a conversation right across the province around um, around racism, um, asking people, you know, what are their experiences being like and um, what do they think we should be doing as a government to move forward and in, uh, in looking for ways to remove barriers uh, for people. We know that uh, in places like Hamilton and uh, other jurisdictions across uh, across the province, across the country, we've seen uh, you know, over the last few years uh, some increases in, uh, in some uh, incidents taking place, hate crimes, uh, uh, things like that, and we just want to look for uh, for ways to uh, uh, to really remove systemic racism and any type of barrier that's put in place, um, so people can really uh, reach their potential and help build this province up. How do we get the people to information sessions like this that need to go? I mean, you know, I'm sure everybody there, you know, tonight will it will be in agreement with what you're saying, but you know, are you preaching to the choir there? So, you know, it's a very good question. Um, so we've kind of uh, structured it in a different way. So we know that um, we're going to collect uh, data, you know, statistics. We know that we're going to do an awareness campaign, an educational campaign. Uh, we know we're going to set up a, um, an ongoing forum for people to discuss issues and, and, uh, and use best practices. We also know we're going to develop tools that organizations can use uh, to, uh, to really uh, self-reflect and see if they're, uh, if they're doing things in, uh, you know, in a way that uh, doesn't cause any disadvantage to certain people. But we don't know exactly who we should be targeting first. You know, should we be targeting education? Should it be inside of government? You know, I'm responsible for children and youth. You know, we've got children's aid societies. And when we look at all of these different things, like you look at, for example, in Toronto, um, you know, 46% of the kids who are in care 
are uh, are African Canadian, um, but yet they represent single digit numbers in the city. Uh, you look at kids, you know, in it from the Indigenous community, 2.5% Indigenous children in the province, but they represent, I believe, 25% of kids in care. Um, you know, if you're black in this province, uh, uh, you have a, um, you know, almost a 30% unemployment rate versus the, uh, you know, the youth average, which is half of that. Um, incarceration levels are different. Educational results are different. So we see all these challenges here, and the only thing that kind of aligns things together at the end of the day it's not if the person's young or old or if they're from the north or south, if they're from, you know, uh, one specific, uh, you know, city or another, but it's race. It's a factor that kind of connects everything and um, has the same results in, in all of these areas you look at. Uh, are we getting better at this or worse post 9-11? I mean, again, none of these issues are new, Michael. They've been right. around for a long time. So uh, it's, it just it, seems yeah. that there's more of them now. Well, it's interesting, you know. It's a land of extremes, and we we can't seem to find the common ground. But, you know, Ontario, like, I'm, you know, I grew up in uh, in Toronto, you know, uh, a black male, you know, had the opportunity to go to university and uh, have a family, and, you know, I've uh, got elected, I represent my community. Like, you know, there are a lot of success stories out there. I don't want people going around thinking that, you know, there's not success in communities, because there's a lot of success, but... Um, and there's a lot of opportunity in Ontario. We know that this place is like a beacon of like hope uh, for many people from around the world. That's why we get 150,000 people wanting to come here or actually landing in Ontario. So, you know, we can't lose sight of that. But what we have to also do is to recognize that racism has always been around. It's just different. It, poses, it, it positions itself in, uh, in different ways. You know, back in the old days, 20, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, you know, someone would just go up to you and say, I don't like you because you're black or I don't like you because you're this. It's very different now. It's very sophisticated. Mm-hmm. It's, it's institutionalized itself within organizations when you look at employment numbers. So you're absolutely right. It's very different. But racism is a very tricky thing to, to grab hold of because it's always modifying itself. It's mute, mute, mutating. It's changing. Um, what we need to do is we need to figure out ways to, and government is, uh, you know, government has to reflect on itself because, you know, this institutionalized racism, you know, systemic racism is found in government as well. We need to look for ways to identify so that same opportunity that's afforded to uh, to to all of us um, is uh, done in an equitable way. And it's not about saying, you know, hey, you, uh, you know, Mr. Whoever, you're a racist, stop what you're doing. It's more about, um, how can I open up doors, remove barriers, uh, provide opportunities so at the end of the day, uh, this province is best positioned to take on, you know, we've got a lot of, like, globalization is taking place. If we don't get our act together in the sense that, you know, there's there's a lot of people who want to work and there's a lot of jobs that are available. There's a mismatch. There's, you know, the s- smart people who are out there, young people that are just not provided the opportunity to get to university or to college or into a trade, you know, are lost opportunities. Opportunity youth are lost in our system. You know, we can't afford to give up one kid. We can't f- afford to give up one bright mind. We cannot afford uh, to, uh, to continue doing this because uh, we need to position this uh, province for its ultimate success. And racism is just one of those factors that takes away from us reaching that point. Why don't we talk more about successes of some of these groups that you're talking about? Indigenous peoples is one that I can think of right away. All we hear about is the doom and gloom. Why don't we hear of the success stories? Why aren't those brought forward as mentors? As, you know, not only to help 
those people, but to also help everybody's perception of those people. Right. Because all you hear is bad or negative. Yeah, it's you know you open up a newspaper these days and you you know you there's there's stereotypical images you you know you put on a television show and you see certain things like you know I had a guy come up to me and you know a couple of weeks ago saying you know which basketball uh, t- you know which where did you play basketball because I'm a tall black guy right you know that type of stuff happens and sometimes it's innocent people don't even realize they're doing it mm. but I think you're right we need to be better storytellers we need to be able to tell our stories and you know we we need to be able to um, to to share with young people that you know um, you know that you you can be successful. We're in the legislature today, and you know um, there's um, you know on our side of the legislature we've got a lot of diversity people from you know. Uh, uh, Indo uh, Canadians, uh, Chinese Canadians, you know, uh, you know, Black Canadians elected uh, on our side of the house as 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 as, li- as as a liberal government. But you know, I thought to myself, I saw these kids all up in the gallery, and they were so diverse from all these different cultures. They're looking down, and next to next to me on the left is Mitzi Hunter, the Minister of Education. You know, young, vibrant uh, Black female, great role model. And in front of me, I think, yeah, right in front of me, or at least to the right, sitting in the sitting in the Deputy Premier's seat. Um, was uh, Granville Anderson. He's a Jamaican guy, black Canadian from uh, from Durham. You know, so you know. I thought to myself, you know, before, you know, never in the history of the legislature have been three yeah. black MPPs sitting there. Yeah. These kids are looking down. I'm so happy that they can look down, and it, regardless of you know, regardless if the kids white, black, you know, Chinese, they're looking down and they're seeing people of diversity in these types of positions. That's new. That and and think about it. Yeah. Never in the history of the legislature have there been three black people sitting in the legislature. Um, so you know, those types of success stories. I think the visual. You know, they. You know, I hope that people. You know, when a young person looks down, they'll see things like that, and it'll inspire them if they ever pursue something like uh, like politics. Uh, getting back to the native issue again, there are a lot, a tremendous amount of very successful reserves out there. Right. There's a lot of examples of very productive situations. Why aren't those put forward? Why why aren't those used to help mentor others? You know, um, around here, Ava Hill, Six Nations, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I had the opportunity to go to uh, into her community. Um, what an incredible community. You know, they're doing some incredible things, the economic developments there. You know, the um, you know there's a young leadership, you know, even on the council. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are communities like that. And uh, we do need to, I agree with you 100%, we need to do a better job as, as a society, you know, to, uh, to share those stories. But I had a teacher tell me recently um, from somewhere in the GTA that um, she brought in an indigenous uh, person into her classroom because when she started teaching the subject, um, her kids, uh, you, they even found it hard to believe that, uh, you know, that indigenous people were still around. Mm-hmm. Like they had no clue. Mm-hmm. So I know the premier and Mitzi Hunch will be bringing forward some stuff to uh, to help within the curriculum. But you're absolutely right. I think I think we need we need to remind people about the history, the long history, you know, of indigenous people in this uh, this uh, this this you know, this region we call Ontario, and we need to uh, identify those success stories that are out there that I know um, we should be celebrating. Uh, lots of chat in the news lately about Black Lives Matter and what's going on south of the border and such. Right. Is that bringing awareness across the border? How can we learn from that and yet n- realize that we are two separate countries, we are two separate cultures? Yeah, you know, um, 
two separate cultures, two separate uh, countries, but you know we share some of the same issues. Um, you know, if you're a uh, simple fact is if uh, if you're a black male driving a car, you're more likely to be pulled over. Or, you know, um, if you're you know if you're uh, a black male in this uh, this country, there's uh, there's challenges that come with it. Um, we've seen some high-profile cases of uh, some, you know, some uh, uh, males who, um, you know, who have been uh, who have been shot by uh, by police here in uh, on Ontario, in Ontario. Um, when we look at what's happening in the streets of the GTA, and Hamilton's, uh, you know, not immune to this, but, you know, you think about, you know, the hundreds of black males that have been murdered, um, you know, on the streets of Toronto, and a lot of those cases not solved, but the violence continues to take place uh, here uh, in the province of Ontario. I would estimate, and I've said this publicly before, you know, in the last 20 years, there's been several hundred young males, and I'm ta- talking about, you know, I'm talking about 35 and under, you know, murdered in in this uh, this in, in in the province of Ontario, and you know, in in the GTA, and uh, those numbers are just uh, they're extraordinary. And um, you know, a young man came in, to, well, a teacher came in to see me a few weeks ago. He said, since uh, you know. Uh, uh, black males who have been murdered in in Toronto in the GTA over the last decade that were you know uh, I guess put into the youth uh, age group you know it was around 140 you know in the last decade so those numbers are just um, you know that's just uh, youth age right so I think, are we uh, smug to to think that you know it is different down there that we're different up here of are course we it's different there like it's a lot but more are we blatant. smug are we smug to think that the yeah thing, because, as Canadians yeah, no we no, don't treat people you know like what? that I just think that you know those issues like in the states you see things they you know you got CNN and Fox and all these big news uh, you know like you see there's a lot of that in in, in yeah. your face and um, you know a lot of personalities attached to it. You know, we know that there's issues in Ontario. We know that there's issues in Canada when it comes to race and uh, when it comes to, uh, you know, some communities and violence. But, you know, I think we can do better. I think we're better positioned than the United States to be successful. We have, I think, you know, the majority of Ontarians uh, care. They want to make they want to make a difference. They want it to be a place where people have uh, opportunity. And, um, you know, the worst thing about it is when you talk to a young person who's like 13, 14, who's bright eyed, who wants to take on the world, you know, who wants to get out there and just make a difference and really, um, you know, be successful. And then you talk to that same person when they're 18 or 19 and something has has switched. Yeah. You know, that lights become a, l- a bit dimmer. You know, to me, that is that's unacceptable here in Ontario. I think what's unacceptable too, as well, Michael, and and what a lot of us don't realize, whatever whatever ethnicity you're growing up, and and specifically uh, with Black Canadians, when parents have to have a discussion with their kids about what they may encounter in life because of how they were born, right? Expand on that because. To have that discussion with your child, yeah, what's that like? You know, I just read a book, um, um, and the whole point was a father in the States talking to his son who was black, and it was about, you know, protecting himself, you know, and the realities. And it's interesting, um, you know, I was speaking to one of my friends a couple of days ago who has a, a, a black son, and he, you know, you have to tell him, you know, and we were talking about what, you know, his conversation is like, you know, how to, you know, if you engage in this situation, what you should be doing, which, um, you know, uh, make sure you, you know, you keep eye contact, make sure you do this. I mean, there's a lot of people out there that um, 
you know, that worry about, you know, their children when they're out on the street. You know, I heard a, a doctor say once that with black black children, that, and I don't want to make this just about black, you mm-hmm. know, and, and, but I'm, you know, I'm a black male, so I come from that experience. But I know that in the, you know, in the Muslim community and, you know, the South Asian community, there's lots of different in the indigenous community. But this one, this one point this, uh, this lady made was, um, you know, in, uh, in, in, in the black community, black boys have to live down um, the expectations that are placed on them. So live them down. And in the white community, they have to live up to the expectations that are mm-hmm. placed on them. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was interesting because, you know, black boys, um, you know, we know in Toronto, you know, uh, almost half of the boys, uh, you know, black young males weren't graduating high school when I was a trustee. That Those statistics came out. You know, so they have to live down those ex- those expectations yeah. that they may drop out. Yeah. You know, we have to, but I, I've always believed it's about higher expectations. You know, the expectations we place on our children, not only as parents, but as a society. You know, it's making sure that they understand, um, you know, that if they can get past that, you know, that three, four years of when the world hits you and you actually mm. become, you know, and, and you actually still. The end of the innocence. If you can, if you can maintain that optimism until that age, and it's hard to do, you know, the age when you hit, you know, university, college, you get into a trade, you know, it can go a long way in your success in life. But there's, there's a lot of work to be done, and that's why we're having these conversations because I want to hear what people think. Um, you know, I, governments, uh, you know, d- doesn't always have the right answer. Uh, you know, in many cases, so we need to go out there, talk to people, get some feedback, and build a strategy for Ontario that is uh, that is uh, open to uh, ensuring that you know people, regardless of where they're from, uh, have an opportunity to be successful in this province. Who should come? Who should attend this tonight? You know what? Um, anyone. If you think what we're doing is a bad idea, come out and say why. If you think it's a great idea. Uh, come out and tell us why you think it's great. If you think we can do something different, come out and tell us. We want to hear from people to make sure at the end of the day um, that um, that we're positioning a strategy for Ontario when it's when it comes to elimination of systemic racism. That's good not only for the people who are affected by racism, but for the people who, um, you know, for all people in Ontario. Because at the end of the day, this is about removing barriers and providing opportunities so we can build a great province and make sure that, you know, we continue to... Uh, be that beacon of light uh, that people look at as as in Ontario as a great place to be and uh, and uh, and and ensure success. Are we evolving? I mean, you look what the Muslim community is going through now. You can look back through our history to various uh, ethnic groups that came or Im- Im- uh, immigrated here and tried to integrate in soci- into society. Do you think this is one of those things that after a generation, everybody will just settle down? You know, I have a lot of faith in the young people of this province. When I go out and meet uh, young people, I think something's different with them. And it's probably different, you know, when we were, you know, that age. Um, that was different from when our parents were that age. You know, those things change, right? My, you know, my grandfather, um, you know, my, my mother is Caucasian. My father's black. Their world was so different. Um, you know, my my mother, you know, my father... Um, you know, my grandfather, you know, didn't uh, have a relationship with my father. And this is England back in the 1960s yeah, in yeah. northern Yorkshire. Yeah, yeah. You know, so, you know, the world's changed since Are you then. amazed at how it's changed so quickly? Because that's not an issue now. Yeah, I mean, no, it's not. Look around your neighborhood. Like, you, you walk, yeah, you walk around Hamilton, Toronto, you can see, like, you know, multicultural, you know. But, you know, the interesting thing is... Um, 
it's you know back in the past it was like these images of like you know white america and black people you know that was the classical perception of racism yeah racism exists between different cultures you get you know people you know from cultures that are non-white you know race racist against you know you know another particular culture or you know even within subcultures you get racism yeah. so you know it's getting more complex um but i think you know people need to understand that that's you know there's no appetite for that here in the province of ontario and we can do better uh so with this you're gathering information what comes out the other end so we're gonna at the end of the day um, you know, we, I've been given a mandate by the premier to uh, to develop a strategy. You know, I would like to uh, I'd like to my personal preference would be working in educational facilities to just, you know, talk a talk a bit about racism and, you know, um, you know, awareness campaigns. Uh, I would love to, um, you know, to start collecting data. Um, you know, when you get a good uh, data collection and you can start to in- integrate that into policy decision making, um, it can change the way you do things. It did, you know, at the Toronto District School Board, when we brought in um, the collection of race-based data, it changed it changed the funding model. It changed uh, mm. the focus. You know, uh, up until up until that point. Um, you know, people, you know, the, 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 the belief that, you know, black males were not doing as well, that was just, a, you know, as anecdotal based yeah. information. Yeah. We got the numbers and we changed the, the, whole, the whole approach. I hope that we can uh, we can do that and bring some sophistication into policy making, uh, into uh, into uh, you know uh, decisions that uh, relate back to opportunity for people, and um, you know people stand up and say you know what you don't want is a government that's you know um, you know back in the eighties with like um, affirmative actions and you know and all that kind of, all that yeah. controversy. That's not what we're talking about here. What we're talking about here is identifying where the issues are. And, um, you know, if we have a board, for example, boards, we have thousands of people that are appointed to boards. I'd love to see the data on how many of those board members are, you know, women of color. Mm -hmm. You know, I bet you the number is probably below 3%, maybe 2%. Um, So those are the types of opportunities I'm thinking about. The Anti-Racism Directorate uh, touches down at Mohawk at the McIntyre Performing Arts Centre today, tonight, 7 o'clock till 10 o'clock. That's uh, 135 Fennel Avenue West up at Mohawk College. And, of course, joining us has been Michael Couteau, Minister of Children and Youth Services. Michael, thanks very much for the time. Much appreciated. Good luck with all this. thank you so much. I appreciate your time. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. For most of us, crime is something we see on the news. We never think it could happen to us until it does. Loved ones are gone, and for the survivors, the scars will never heal. I'm Nancy Hickst, a senior crime reporter for Global News. And on this season of Crime Beat, I'll take you inside some of the most serious crime stories I've covered. Season six of Crime Beat is available now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and all podcast platforms.